We are starting the show, though, talking about what could be some changes coming for cannabis stores in Vancouver. Joining us on the line is Mike Babbins. He is the owner of Evergreen Cannabis, which is on 4th Avenue in Kitsilano. Mike, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, This is a potential change coming, nothing official as of yet, but this has to do with how you have to display, well, what you have to do with the windows of your store. So what are the rules as they are now? As they are now, you cannot see any product from outside the store. Um, They say that's to protect our children um, that they couldn't see inside. So we have fog covering our entire window Um, And it's been like that since legalization. Right. So you can't, it's not allowed for anybody to see products. So you could, you could go of two ways. I would imagine you could fog the windows or block the windows, or you could have a store with absolutely nothing on the shelves. Pretty much. And uh, no, nothing on the walls, nothing on the shelves, uh, nothing seen. It it would basically be a wall full of uh, those, those, those basic, um, I can't even think of the word, Mm. like curtains and, 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 and screens and stuff like that, which, doesn't work really well in retail. Right. And, and other than, than people not seeing into the store and uh, not being able to see the product, are there other issues that, uh, have, have, that you've noticed with having the, the smoked out, the fogged out windows? Well, the biggest issue is safety. You know, there have been some robberies at some cannabis stores and no one on the street was able to walk by and see what was happening. Same time, if someone were to call the police uh, during a robbery, they'd have to go in blind, which is completely unsafe for them. I'm glad you mentioned that. I wanted to share, this is just a, a bit of one of the answers of another a cannabis store owner, Charles Baraboff, who joined me on the show a few weeks ago. Because of that very issue, there was a robbery at his store. Two customers had just left the store and it was so close, they almost held the door open for the culprit and he walked in and the minute he was behind the protection of the frosted windows, he pulled out a gun. He walked super fast up to the clerk, and she raised her head. He pointed the gun right at her. And a frightening, frightening few moments for the clerks, for the workers in that shop. My guess is, though, that's happened more than the time it happened to that store on Kingsway. Luckily, it hasn't happened in Vancouver very often, but it has been happening in other cities and other provinces. So you have been told that perhaps the rules are, are changing, and I know the public safety minister in BC has been having a lot of conversations with those in the cannabis industry. What are you expecting could happen? Well, right now I'm sitting like I'm waiting for Metallica tickets, just sitting refresh, 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 refresh. When's it going to pop up? When are they going to announce it? Uh, but there is... I've, there's a lot of talk that they're going to either announce today that we're going to eventually be able to take them down, or in classic BC government fashion, at the end of the day, before a long weekend, when we can't do anything about it, they're going to say you could take them down right now. And, and what makes you so confident that this change is coming? A few weeks ago, there was a cannabis conference, uh, and some government officials were there. Normally, when uh, we bring up things such as the fogged out windows, we get an absolute no. This time we were told we're looking into it. We should have an answer within a few weeks. Hmm. And did you get the sense that they were more understanding of the issues that you brought up, the safety issues and the things that now that we've been in this for, for a few years, uh, what maybe isn't working? I think they have kind of have understood the issues the whole time. They just didn't want to go up against federal 
federal government because it's a federal government rule. Now, in Alberta, they took the coverings down, went against the federal ruling, and it's been completely fine. In the city of uh, Victoria, they actually passed the rule that you can't cover your windows, which has been horrible for the stores there because they've been getting fines for having the windows not covered, but they aren't allowed to cover the windows. So it's just been a circle and circle and circle of red tape. <laughs> Wait, oh, so hold on a second. So in Victoria, they've been told you can't cover the windows, but th- so who's finding them? Uh, the uh, c- cannabis uh, safety uh, officers. Huh. And what what ha- what would happen then? Or have you talked to any of the owners who are saying, well, hold on a second. In this city, the rule is not to cover them. What am I supposed to do? From who I've from the people I've spoken to, they're basically just letting the tickets pile up. Remember here before legalization, uh, when the government, uh, the uh, Vancouver City Council was allow was licensing stores with a business license. But if you didn't have your business license, you would get a ticket. But you didn't really have to pay the ticket if you were in the process of getting the license. So it was that whole circle, 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 waiting, hoping it gets fixed before you get hit with more money than you could afford to pay. Right. And you mentioned Alberta as well. So is it the same scenario that store owners are getting tickets there as well, or is that different? Not at all, because the province mandated it. Mm. So it's just store windows are not covered, everybody's safe. I won't say anything else about Alberta. (laughs) All right. But would you like to see that? I'm I'm guessing you would like to see the B.C. government kind of follow in that path and give give store owners. Would it work better than that? They came out and said um, you can't cover the windows or should it be left up? Do you think to the store owners on what they're most comfortable with? 100 percent up to the store owners. I, I don't see why any would want to keep their windows covered. But from uh you know, from an owner's point of view, if I just spent a lot of money decorating my store with the concept that the windows had to be covered, I may not be able to afford to take them down right away. Right. So I, I've been preparing for this. I, I'm ready to go. I literally have a team sitting by their phone, and the second it happens, I am making a call, and they will be there to take the windows down. It, it's going to be full of pomp and circumstance. <laughs> you know, p- picture the King Charles ceremony, but with uh, Low Rider by War playing instead. <laughs> what is it actually on your window that's, that's covering it? Right now, we've got basically a plastic uh, layer of uh, fog, so you can't see in. So as soon as we tear those down, we're going to have light in the store again. You'll be able to see our happy faces when when you walk by. Actually, it's funny. When we first, first opened the store, uh, those first few weeks when it was just me and my wife and you know, no one knew who we were yet, so the place was empty. We just waved at everyone who walked by, and we got known as a store where those two people are going to wave at you as you walk by. I don't know what's going on in there. So, so I want that to start again as soon as possible. I want the return of the evergreen wave. But, so where were you waving that they could see you? Well, we were before legalization mm. when we were a city-licensed uh, medical cannabis right. store. Our windows, actually the, the city law was the windows could not be covered. So we, we had our windows mm-hmm. wide open then. And then it, it was, again, it was another thing I went through when the day we got our license, the city still had the rule of no coverings, but the government, the provincial and federal said there needed coverings, so I had to have them argue it out, and then they told me to cover up the windows, and it's been like that ever since. All right, and uh, Mike, just one other question. Uh, if this does happen and the change comes, do you get any sense of, will there also be rules then on, on what you can have displayed or what can be on the, the shelves in your store, or do you think it's just going to be a blanket, take the, take the coverings off the windows if you want to? I think it's going to be a blanket because look at, you know, you walk by a liquor store, you could see whatever you want in there, you know, and, and if, 
we're going to talk about stigmas and stuff, you know, try watching a hockey game with your kid without them uh, being bombarded with ads about gambling, right? <laughs> All right. Well, Mike, uh, I know, like you said, uh, you're hitting refresh and waiting for the official word. Uh, let us know when it happens. And thanks so much for your time today. Always great to talk to you, Jill. It is a long weekend for many, many people, and that means the roads are going to be very busy. Coming up on this show, we're also going to check in with BC Ferries. But right now, Carl Nadu is joining us, a Michelin driving expert, also a professional race car driver. Carl, great to have you back on the show. Oh, thanks a lot. Always a pleasure. Well, it's a good reminder because, unfortunately, we do see crashes and we often uh, see fatalities on the roads, not only here in B.C., but I know the Ontario Police Department put out a lot of warnings earlier today as well. What do you think is kind of the main thing people do wrong when heading out on the roads when we're talking about safety? Well, there's a lot of things. Uh, first of all, uh, a lot of people don't don't have their car ready before leaving. That means uh, having an inspection and making sure that everything is fine on the car. The alignment is good. Uh, the oil change has been done. There's enough windshield washer fluid, uh, and there's no component that can break on the road. So that that's one thing that's impossible. That's uh, important to cover. There's also the good old uh, tire pressure check. Uh, you have to make sure that your tires are not over or under inflated so you have to make sure that they are at the recommended tire pressure by the manufacturer and there's also the fact that a lot of people we try to be ready before we leave but it's always a rush at the last minute so you're trying to pack the kids are running around the house and at the end of the day you leave and half an hour or an hour late and you try to catch up on the road and that's one of the worst mistakes you can do Hmm. Do we think? Do you think that we see more in that it seems more uh, second nature to get your car ready for the winter driving rather than summer driving? <laughs> A lot of times it it does because if the if the road looks fine and clear and the weather is nice, we think it's always going to be good. But uh, at the end of the day, a, a car it's mechanical, so you have to make sure it's maintained right and everything has been thoroughly uh, checked before you leave for a long trip. And you mentioned tire pressure. Uh, is that, uh, we've talked about this before as far as getting better mileage if your tire pressure is right, but, but when we talk about it or look at it from a safety perspective, what are the concerns if your tires are over or under filled? There's a lot of concern. First of all, a tire that's uh, overinflated uh, is going to wear extremely fast in the center of the tire, and underinflated tire will wear on both sides. Uh, but the, the the problem is, an overinflated tire can can go all the way up to a blowout if it's really way overinflated, and an underinflated tire will react poorly to driver input. So if you turn the steering wheel, it's going to take a while for the tire to actually move the tire in the direction you want to go just because it's, it's soft and it it's, it's just reacts uh, with a delay. So that, that can make your life pretty bad. <laughs> and when you talk about an overinflated tire, then that potential or the, the safety hazard that it could blow, is it also more prone to do that, say, if you're highway driving? Well, uh, uh, highway driving, of course, it can build 
uh, heat in the tire. So if the tire is already overinflated, more heat in the tire will mean the tire pressure is going to rise even more. Uh, while if you drive at slow speed, usually it doesn't affect the, the heat of the tire the same way than, than straight line regular driving on the highway. I know a lot of the newer cars as well that have the sensors in them will tell you if one of your tires is uh, under pressure or will tell you if something has gone wrong. Uh, You mentioned to to make sure it's the manufacturer's uh, recommendation or the, the number for the tires. So how different is it from vehicle to vehicle? Uh, it really depends uh, on, on some vehicle. The tire pressure f- uh, on the front and the rear axle can be different. So there's no general w- rule saying like it's 30 pounds in the tire. It's not. So you always have to open the, the driver's side door and there's a sticker there, black and white, that's going to tell you uh, exactly the tire pressure you should put on the front and the back. And sometimes there's uh, two different tire size. So make sure that you follow the, the tire size that you actually have on the car because sometimes there's a optional wheel that are bigger and it can change the recommended tire pressure. Right, because I think you're right that there seems to be that number 30 or 32 that people think is just the general, the general pressure that all tires should be at. Yeah, it's been floating around for the last 30, 40 years, but it's so different from a car to another. I've seen cars all the way up to 42, 44 pounds recommended, while others are at 28. So you cannot just put 30 and say, I'm safe. It's not safe. <laughs> and when you mentioned, too, that the tires won't respond as well if they're underinflated. And uh, w- would you notice that if you were driving, that if it was underinflated, would you as a driver, well, you probably would as a professional driver but would would (laughs) just anybody driving would you be able to feel the difference i can tell you that pro drivers usually one pound difference we can actually feel it in the tip of our finger Uh, unfortunately not all people have the same sensitivity there's people that drive on a flat tire and don't even know that that they have a flat while others will will feel it more so again unfortunately there's no general rule so that's why we always suggest at least once a month to check tire pressure on all the tires and don't forget the spare because again if you have a a flat tire on the way uh, you'll rely on the spare and if it's at zero psi (laughs) then you need a towing (laughs) Yeah, you're right. It's kind of out of sight, out of mind, but you don't want to forget about yeah. the, the spare wherever it is in your vehicle. Especially that all your luggage will be on top of the spare because usually it's it's in the trunk. So after digging and taking all the luggage off the car, you find a, a spare that has zero PSI. I don't think you'll be happy. <laughs> no, not really, not at all. Uh, what about driving in the heat if people are driving in, in very hot conditions? And what do you have to do to make sure uh, the car doesn't overheat or to stay safe in that scenario? Well, it it, it comes with the planning because usually a car in perfect condition, even if it's 35 degrees outside, it's not going to change anything. The, the, the operating, uh, operating uh, temperature of the engine will just stay the same. But if you have a radiator problem or you have a coolant link uh, leak or if you have any other mechanical problem, of course, on the road, especially if you, if you carry a trailer or something heavy, uh, it's, it's going to make everything worse. But if you didn't plan ahead, unfortunately, there, there's no miracle. You, you'll at some point have to stop uh, on your trip. 
So, yeah, again, a small inspection at your local garage. Uh, and, of course, the garage will look at your tire wear. They're going to see if it's right. You can ask them, make sure you check tire pressure and you inflate the tire at the, the, right, uh, the right temperature. Make sure you have windshield washer uh, fluid. Because again, there's a lot of uh, mosquitoes now. So uh, it's to, to clean the, the windshield, you'll need the uh, fluid. So it's, it's very little details that you have to do before you leave. No, it's a good reminder as well. And with the temperatures rising, and uh, I think we know that running the air conditioning, it's, uh, doesn't, you don't get as good of mileage. But do you have other tips for people with gas being the price it is? How do you get the most mileage when you're going on these longer trips? Yeah, I got a few tips. Uh, well, usually on, on highway speed, uh, you better rely on AC than uh, open the windows. But if you're traveling in the, in the street with uh, basically, uh, if, you, if you drive uh, slower, uh, you can open the windows instead of relying on, uh, on AC. So that's a very little detail that can make your, your life better. Of course, the speed. Uh, we have a tendency to drive like 10 kilometers an hour faster than the, the speed limit. But the faster you go, the more fuel consumption you're, you're going to have. So make sure that uh, that basically you, you travel at a small, uh, lower speed. And again, if you accelerate, do it gently because every single time you mash the accelerator pedal and you accelerate really quickly, it, it takes more fuel to do it. Right. And I think people, uh, everybody has probably been in the scenario where that person passes you and does all of the things you just said, but you still catch <laughs> up to them at the next light or see them on the road. You still get to the same place. Yeah, or they get stuck on traffic. Cause unfortunately, a lot of people take uh, the, uh, the the fast lane, the passing lane for a uh, scenic drive uh, lane. So <laughs> they're mm-hmm. going to get stuck behind uh, somebody. And that's an advice I would give, like, Nobody likes road rage, so don't don't be a factor that contributes. So if you're traveling at a regular speed, do it in the center lane or the right lane and let people that are basically driving faster just pass and go their own way. All right. And for driving tips as well, what are the kind of the, the, the major infractions? Is it distracted driving? Is it not shoulder checking in scenarios where you should be? Or what, what do you think, what kind of bad habits do people have? There's so many of them. First of all, a lot of people don't use their, uh, their signal lights. And for me, it's just a, a form of respect to indicate to other drivers that you're going to go left or right. It's, it's just normal to use them. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't. Uh, and for me, that's pretty dangerous. Uh, again, shoulder check. There's a lot of technology on the cars. And a lot of newer cars have indicator in the mirror that tells you that somebody is in the blind spot. But uh, like it's electrical, it's mechanical, it might not work all the time. So a little shoulder check before you change lane might save a crash. So it's, again, like uh, hell and heaven are in the details sometimes when you're driving. And for me, it's very important to do those, those respectful things when you're driving. I would imagine, too, given your background, that when you're driving, not as a race car driver, but you must see all of these things when you're just driving just on a normal roadway. Yeah, every racing and driving instructor, (laughs) we have that tendency to analyze everything. And when I'm driving, often I can, can, like, 
half a kilometer in front of me, I can know where the hands of the driver are on the steering wheel or little details like that, just by the way the, the vehicle is behaving on the road. So like a good driving position, close enough to the steering wheel, hands at nine and three, two hands on the steering wheel at all time, thumbs resting on the thumb rest, the little hole in the steering wheel. It's, it's a bunch of little details that will make the ride much better, especially if you have people uh, with, that are sensitive with motion sickness. Like I know my, my cottage is now three, three and a half hours from, from home, and one of my kids have bad motion sickness, so I have to be extremely smooth with every driving input I make. And, and people that are not smooth, unfortunately, they ask a lot more from their car, and it, in some condition it can cause a crash. So, uh, And I, I would give you a little advice, too. If you have people sensitive to motion sickness, uh, you shouldn't travel with with them having an empty stomach because it, it, most of the time it makes things worse. There's a product like gravel for kids and stuff like that. You can give them like half an hour, an hour before they leave. And when you're planning for your trip, if you know somebody has motion sickness, you can plan stop in advance so they don't have to drive two, three hours straight without stopping. But again, it's going to slow you down because every time you stop for 20 minutes, it's going to add to the trip. So leave early, stay relaxed, stop a few times, and it's going to rest the driver too. So it's a win-win. All right, Carl, thank you so much for your time today. Absolute pleasure. Be safe out there. Well, it was back in October of 2018 when a Chilliwack school board trustee, Barry Newfeld, filed a civil defamation suit against Glenn Hansman, who is a past president of the BC Teachers Federation. And this has been making its way through the courts, but today it appears that battle is over. The Supreme Court of Canada has decided that comments made by Glenn Hansman in 2018 against or about Barry Newfeld that those were fair comment. Joining us to talk a little bit more about the details of this suit and what this means is Clint Johnson, the current president of the BC Teachers Federation. Clint, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And Robin Trask is also with us, general counsel at the BC Teachers Federation. Robin, thanks to you as well. Thank you, Jill. Uh, Robin, maybe I can start with you. With the Supreme Court of Canada ruling today, what specifically does that ruling say And as, as far as drawing an end to this case? Yes, the decision uh, you know, has a number of different points, and then we'll be analyzing it for some time going forward. But as you note, um, it is an end to this defamation action. We're obviously very happy about that. It's the first time the Supreme Court of Canada has considered the Protection of Public Participation Act, uh, which is somewhat new legislation from BC. And um, there, we had made an application under that act that the defamation suit should be dismissed, uh, looking at both the fair comment defense and a, a weighing exercise that considers the public interest. And um, the, the court, the Supreme Court of Canada, agreed that um, the defamation action should be dismissed and should not proceed further. And so did the court kind of rule, and like you said, this is new, newish legislation in BC, but d does the, the court then back up the idea that this was a slap lawsuit, this was a lawsuit basically aimed more at, at making somebody quiet, uh, making them st stop saying what they were saying, uh, even though it, it maybe wasn't, it wasn't deemed defamatory? Um, the court does make some comments about anti-slap legislation generally, and um, there's been 
other other decisions um, that have looked at what are the indicia of a slap suit and um, there's sort of, you know, a variety of criteria that are, have historically been considered to amount to a slap suit. And the court says, you know, you don't have to have all of those criteria. There doesn't necessarily have to be a history of litigation between the parties. Um, there doesn't, one party doesn't necessarily have to be uh, sort of in a stronger financial position than the other. If the objective is to uh, silent speech, then that's going to be the main thing that they're going to look at. Uh, Clint, I want to bring you in on this as well. Uh, what is your response? Uh, I don't know if you've talked to Glenn Hansman about this, but with the fact that the, the highest court uh, has ruled in his favor. Yeah, I had an opportunity to speak with Glenn, obviously, and he's, he's just got an immense sense of release and ha- relief and happiness. Um, but he also he wanted to make sure that this stayed focused where it should, which is on the, the protection of ability to stand up for marginalized groups and to speak out against speech that can cause harm to those groups. So he's certainly happy and uh, happy it's over, um, but very much centered on what this means for more than just himself, certainly, but also even more than the Federation in terms of protection marginalized groups across Canada. And I mentioned, too, that it was October 2018 when this civil defamation suit was filed against Glenn Hansman. Can you remind us, though, again, some of the details of this case, how we got to that point? Sure. So... Um, trustee, at the time he was a trustee, Trustee Barry Newfold had made a variety of comments in the public realm um, on Facebook, at, at uh, various events, um, and there was a broad concern within the education sector about those statements that, uh, that Trustee Newfold had made, and Glenn Hansman was contacted by the media and gave um, comment to the media um, expressing his concern about Trustee Newfeld's statements. Um, the BCTF also had filed a human rights complaint against Trustee Newfeld um, because of the BCTF's concern that those um, statements amounted to discrimination under the code. All right. And, and Clint, you, you mentioned as well that this case is kind of bigger than that. It's about uh, standing up for, for groups that could be marginalized. How, uh, how much of an impact do you think this has had on, uh, on discussions around SOGI and discussions about exactly that, standing up for people and making sure there are those protections in place? Well, I think it's I think it's going to have a very big impact. And one of the reasons is there's still lots of groups that are standing up and, and standing with those groups, uh, speaking out. Absolutely. But I think it's important to note, you know, this is five years we've been pursuing this all the way to the Supreme Court. The BCTF is an organization that has the resources to do that kind of thing. But there's lots of other organizations speaking for these groups and on behalf of these groups and with these groups that don't have those. So there was a, there could have been a bit of a chilling effect if it was felt that this was going to happen to you if you spoke out. So I think it's really, uh, it's really good for a much broader swath because it's people who don't have the same resources or size of voice that we do, but who want to be there, want to be vocal, and, and this tells them that you can do that with, with less fear. If you're commenting on a particularly an elected official's comments, um, you know, and they should know better, that you have a pretty wide swath now to respond to those affirmatively and, and strongly. Uh, this individual uh, has made other comments as well, uh, though, and, uh, and has been in the media quite a bit. Uh, I noticed in the court ruling, uh, one, of the, one of the points that was made was uh, if, if, trying to make the argument that he had been harmed by these comments uh, didn't really fly and that he had been reelected and he, he was continuing to express his views. It's not as though he stopped doing that. Uh, I don't know if, Clint, you want to talk to that or Robin, uh, w- w- that part of the ruling. 
Yeah, I can certainly speak to it, and Robin may follow up. But uh, I think that was really uh, it was it was good for us to hear from the court because that was always our perspective. Um, you know, if you're going to cite harm to yourself, you need to show where that harm has happened. And this is an individual that um, lives in a community that that clearly he can move freely about. Clearly, he can voice those opinions and still have a reasonably comfortable life. He got reelected. He continued to share those views and perspectives. So we were really happy to see the court uh, affirm that if you're going to you're going to tout harm, you need to show harm. And in this case, it was clear that there couldn't be any harm shown. Um, so it was just fair comment. And, and we were happy to have that affirmed by the court for sure. And Robin, maybe you can weigh in on that uh, as well, on, on how important was that part of the ruling? Um, yes, the court, this is part of the weighing exercise in the public interest. And the court said, you know, when you're looking at a defamation suit, there is uh, some uh, presumption of uh harm or damage when you just um, from the uh, from the fact of a of a def- defamation or a defamatory comment that lowers the reputation of an individual but if you're going to assert harm for the purpose of um, arguing that your defamation action should continue you have to have some actual evidence and something more um, needs to be considered as part of the weighing exercise more than just an assertion and the the process itself, Robin, is it when we see something go all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada and when the court rules, so if I'm getting this correctly, it was the lowest court or the lowest court made a decision that did was in favor of Glenn Hansman. The appeals court overturned that and it was the Supreme Court that said, no, actually, that lower court ruling was the right one. That's correct. Is that odd to see that or does that happen quite often? Oh, no, that's often how um, these matters sort of work the way through our courts. And, you know, um, for this, in this instance, this was the first time a case under the Protection of Public Participation Act, uh, that at least the B.C. legislation had made its way to the Supreme Court of Canada. So hopefully this will provide a lot of guidance going forward. There was similar legislation out of Ontario that was considered by the Supreme Court of Canada previously. um, But now that there's some guidance uh, specifically on the B.C. Act and on these types of circumstances, uh, you know, hopefully there won't need to be another case like this in the future. All right. And uh, Clint, does this also, I mean, I know it's it's been a long time, it's been several years, as mentioned, and again, going all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, do you think it has sparked more conversations or discussions about SOGI and about what it actually is? Was there perhaps some some confusion over that? Well, I think there there may be some confusion. You know, we respect the fact that a lot of individuals are working, living their life, and they don't necessarily have the time to to look at every single thing that comes out in detail. But um, I think what really is at stake here is that the groups that are continuing to push for and continuing to cause harm, in our opinion, aren't they're not missing. They're, they don't have not have access to the information. They have chosen. Um, from their own perspective, to attack a resource and to mischaracterize it and to use it um, in ways that it is not being used and suggest that there's harm coming where there isn't. So I don't, I don't know that it's uh, necessarily that most people needed more information about SOGI. It's that there needs to be an ability to push back on the misinformation and the groups that are intentionally mischaracterizing what it is and how it's being used. Um, and I think this, legisla- this decision pardon me, will give them uh, a little bit more freedom when they're feeling like, do I push back and how hard do I push back? I think there'll be more freedom to do that. So it, it kind of, to me, facilitates what's needed is an ability to push back on the misstatements, the misinformation and the intentional misuse rather than information. Certainly it, it's given more uh, 
conversations, but anyone who takes a little bit of time to look at SOGI and actually go online, look up the actual resources and the ministry information, they can be reassured quite quickly. It's pushing back on the groups that intentionally misuse it. All right. And uh, Robin, uh, you mentioned that this will offer some clarity or, or per potentially offer some clarity moving forward. Does this set a precedent then when, when dealing with, uh, again, like you said, this rather the new uh, le- legislation? Yes, certainly. I think it does. And and so how will that work then, do you think, moving forward? Will it uh, would be cases, if there is a similar case, it hopefully wouldn't have to go all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada? Yes, exactly. And because, you know, this legislation is intended to be a screening mechanism and screen cases out of the very costly litigation stream, um, you know, particularly when you're talking about defamation suits, these are resource-intensive kinds of cases when they proceed to a trial. Um, so hopefully going forward, um, this will provide some guidance on the types of cases that should be streamed out at the early stages and um, save the parties involved some resources as well. Right. And uh, Clint, you mentioned as well costly. Do you know how much this costs the BCTF? Uh, no, I don't know how much this costs the BCTF, but I do know that either in terms of time or money, um, it was more than worth the cost. All right. Well, thanks to both of you uh, for uh, giving us these details, for providing uh, this update. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having us on. Thanks. Well, it is the Friday before a long weekend, and that means roads are busy, ferries are busy as well. Joining the show now is Deborah Marshall, Public Affairs, the BC Ferries Executive Director of Public Affairs. Deborah, thanks so much for your time. Oh, it's my pleasure, Jill. Well, I want to get to uh, the expanded pet policy on uh, ferries, but before we do that, uh, I know that uh, BC Ferries did bring in a lot of extra sailings for this weekend. How are things going right now? Well, things are shaping up to be a typical uh, long weekend at BC Ferries. Uh, We started to see traffic move yesterday from both Horseshoe Bay as well as Tawasom. That's been continuing today and I would expect throughout the rest of the evening. And then uh, traffic will be returning on the holiday Monday from Vancouver Island as well as the Sunshine Coast. Uh, We expect Sports Bay to be exceptionally busy on the Monday. There are several different events going on and uh, lots of people will be heading back on the holiday Monday. And as far as operations with ferries, am I, am I correct in saying that we're not dealing with any breakdowns or, or technical or operating issues right now? Well, our engineers have been working very hard to make sure everything's in top-notch order. Uh, we don't have any service interruptions at this time. Uh, and we have added uh, 95 extra sailings to accommodate the volume that we expect over the weekend. I'm guessing if you don't have a reservation, though, those are all booked up at this point? Well, yes, the bookings are pretty much fully subscribed at the peak times uh, for vehicles, uh, and that that would be typically heading over to the island and the Sunshine Coast the beginning of the weekend and then returning on the Monday. Uh, One thing we might see as well is overloads for foot passengers on these peak weekends, long weekends. Sometimes that does occur on our major routes. And uh, that means then uh, there might be space or it might look like there's space in the vehicle deck, but because of the number of foot foot passengers that has to be curled back or or, or kind of uh, pulled back a bit? Well, at the terminals, they certainly try to balance the needs for both types of customers, but uh, we want to make sure we're utilizing that deck space so there might be occasions when a few foot passengers may be held back. 
All right. I uh, wanted to talk as well about the expansion of the pilot project. This allows uh, cats and dogs on more of the outside, the upper decks. Where has this been expanded to at this point? Sure. Well, back in the fall, uh, we did a pilot project on the Earl's Cove Saltry Bay Run where we were allowing pets on the upper outer decks. Uh, so just this week, we've expanded it to one of our major routes, which is the Horseshoe Bay Departure Bay Run. And also, uh, we've expanded it to the Comox Powell River Run. And so what can people actually do in, in those on those vessels that have that uh, that area? Where can they go and what does that look like? Uh, well, certainly anybody with a dog with a leash uh, must be one meter in length and cats in travel carriers. They can bring them up to the upper outer decks. We'll have designated areas on board and uh, people can enjoy the outdoor space with the pets. And I'm guessing uh, that the, well, not guessing, I think I saw this, that it worked out quite well, like you said, that pilot project where people were able to try this out on that one ferry run. What kind of a response did you get from people? Well, we had about a thousand pets traveling with us uh, when we when we did the pilot last fall, and uh, about 90% of the comments were favorable. So now we're expanding it to a major route, Uh, you know, more people obviously traveling on the major route. So we want to see what that experience looks like. We want to get feedback from our customers as well as our staff on how that works. Were there any issues, like you said, the leash needs to be a meter and, and cats in a carrier. Were there any issues with people not following those rules? Not to my knowledge. Uh, you know, sometimes we do have uh, exceptions to the rule, but um, we definitely want to make sure that uh, we get that feedback from our customers and our employees, see if we need to tweak anything before we would look towards expanding it to other routes. All right. And as far as doing that, if people are taking advantage of the expansion of the project on the on that more major route, do they have to do anything different when booking? Or as far as is there a cap on the number of animals that can be on that particular vessel? Or is it okay, people can just show up and take part? Well, we are limiting it to two dogs per owner, uh, but there isn't a limit uh, as far as how many pets we could have on board uh, and customers don't have to book in advance or let us know that they're going to bring a pet with them. All right, but you can only have two dogs per person? That's correct, yes. And is that the same with cats? Uh, we actually didn't put a limit on the cats, but each cat would, cat would have to be in the travel carrier case. So uh, I would imagine a maximum of two per person. All right. And sorry, like you said, so this is going to be going on to see how the project goes this summer. Is there a way for people to offer their feedback or how can people kind of get involved in that if they want to? Uh, Certainly, we're always interested in feedback. Uh, Customers can fill out a survey. Uh, We've got a QR code that's on postcards on the vessel and uh, they can also send us an email or give us a call. All right. Deborah Marshall, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great weekend.